0: Turn your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. This is one of the difficult passages in the Scripture, and uh, I think it's wise that we look at it tonight. The title of the message, if they shall fall away. If they shall fall away. That title comes from verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Verse 4 says about these people, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, look carefully. I want to begin in chapter 6, verse 1. And I hope you have your Bibles open, and I encourage you to use the King James Version. That way we all are together, and uh, we we understand what translation we're using. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Underscore that phrase in, in your Bible. Let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. And then he has three or four verses of an if clause. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away To renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh, and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it, and bringeth forth herbs fit for them to whom it is tilled, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is near unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved... We are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work, your labor of love, which ye have shown toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath is for, for, for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Now you remember that Melchizedek was that four type of Christ. We preached about that this morning in the fifth chapter. We do not know who Melchizedek was. Many believe he was Shem, the son of Adam and Eve. Others believe he was the great man that built the pyramids in Egypt. We don't know who he is. There are still others that would say, In all probability, Melchizedek was a theophany. Theophany. Can you say that word? Theophany. Say it again. That means a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now, we cannot be dogmatic about that. But the interesting thing is that Jesus was called in the Psalms, in other prophets, and in Hebrews a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Aaron was, the, the, those who became priests after Aaron and those who were in the, the Levitical tribe were all priests. They got it by inheritance. Aaron got it because Moses didn't want it. Isn't that interesting? Listen, if you offer enough excuses to God, God will take you seriously and pass over you. Now, he had a special, wonderful mission for Moses. But Moses didn't really have to have Aaron. He elected to have him. And so he said, no, God, I'm not a speaker and all that. So God said, almost in anger, he said, all right, I'll, I'll use your brother, Aaron. Now, you be like the God spokesman, and he'll say what you're supposed to say to the Pharaoh. And so that's what happened. Remember, there are priests... Represents man to God and God to man and that's exactly what Jesus does He represents man to God and God to man Now in the earlier part of this passage and Incidentally there are four tremendous points that I want to try to lay on your heart tonight but in the earlier part of of, uh, Hebrews There's a reference, well not uh, in just one specific plot, there are five severe warnings in Hebrews to God's people. They're all warnings to God's people. They're not warnings to the unsaved. However, there's a principle in which you take those warnings and you can apply them to the unsaved also. First warning is in chapter two verses one to four, drifting through neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That was given first to believers. Now there's a principle in which unsaved people can take that warning and be reminded that they don't have forever if they neglect this wonderful salvation that Jesus earned for us on the cross, there comes a line which is drawn by rejecting our Lord where the call of his spirit is lost and you hurry along with the pleasure mad throng. But have you counted the cost? The second warning is in chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, doubting the word. And the key in that passage is the hardened heart. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, like they did in the provocation, the temptation in the wilderness. Don't have a hard heart. Open your heart to what God wants to do. These are admonitions to God's people. Thirdly, in Hebrews 5, through 6:20, the dullness toward the word through sluggishness or an I don't care attitude or... I'll try something else, I'll have my own ambitions, I'll get my own thing done. The fourth one, Hebrews 10, 26 to 30, despising the word through willful sin, for if you sin willfully after you've received the promise of truth, and so on. The fifth one is in Hebrews 12, 14 to 29, discrediting the word by refusing to hear. Now, we're going to focus on the third severe warning. Chapter 5, 11 through six twenty. Now listen to this. Beginning in chapter 6, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Who is the us in this passage? He's talking about believers, God's people. He's not talking about the unsaved. He's talking about God's people. And he said, here's what we're to do. Let us go on into perfection. Let us check up on ourselves all the time. Are we more like Jesus today than we were a year ago? My friend down here just got saved Wednesday night. he to be baptized tonight. A year from now, you need to be more like Jesus. Every one of us needs to have that as our goal, to be like Jesus and to grow in Christian faith. <clears throat> Are you more like Jesus than you were 10 years ago or 5 years ago? I know some people, when they were in their early teens, loved the Lord. And then they got into these rough teen years, and you can't even tell whether they loved the Lord or not. This is a severe warning to you. This is a severe warning to every person who has ever known Christ. Let us go on to perfection. And the word perfection means maturity. It doesn't mean being sinless. It means being mature as a Christian. Now, let's look at this warning passage, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. What in the world does this passage mean? Well, there are some possibilities. Some believe that that passage means one can be saved and then lost after you're saved. That he's referring to salvation here. For it is impossible if you've, you were enlightened, you heard the word of God, you tasted the heavenly gift, you came in and sang the songs of Zion, and you enjoyed the fellowship with Christians, you were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart and convicted you, and you've tasted the good word of God, that's the Bible, and the powers of the age to come, and you've recognized that heaven is real, hell is real, and the second coming of Christ is real. If they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance is impossible. And so, if this is referring to salvation, it would mean that if you've come and experienced, experienced all the wonderful things about salvation, and then you turn away, look what all he says. If they shall fall away, it is impossible to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And so what it's saying here is if you do fall away, you can never come back. Never. If that's what it means. You think that through. I've read a number of commentaries, and, and many of the commentaries quote somebody that wrote years ago and said, well, this just means it's difficult to come back. That isn't what the Word says. It says it's impossible to come back, if that's what it means. Number two, the second possibility, this refers to one who has tasted but not actually received the gift of salvation. And an illustration is given of the Israel people, Israeli people when they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They came up to Kadesh Barnea. The Canaan over there was the promised land. And they were singing, it was sort of like heaven to me. And Moses said, let's go on. God told us it's his property. It's his will. He promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is ours. Just go in and take it. And they got scared. And so they appointed some spies, 12 of them. And they went in. And when they came back, 10 of them said, those are walled cities. We couldn't possibly take it. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants in the land. There's no way we could do that. Two of them came back and said, we're able to do it. But they listened to the majority report. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Let me ask you. Did they actually enter Canaan? They looked at it. They didn't go in and possess it. And so it is possible that this illustration mentioned here refers to people who have come right up to the door of salvation. And they've looked in. They've heard God speak to them. They've heard the preaching of the word. They've heard the great singing. They've even sung some of the songs themselves. But when it comes to the real commitment, not just walking down an aisle, but the real commitment of this life on the altar of service, they come short of it. And this scripture says, if that happens, there is a line that is drawn by rejecting our Lord. It's a line in the sand. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. My spirit shall not always strive with man in Genesis chapter six. And it's possible that a person can taste all of this and never really be a child of God. And so there are some who believe that that's what that passage means. I want you to examine another thought. Look in verse one. Leaving the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. The milk of the word is so important in our early Christian life and before we're saved. But after we get saved, we need the meat of the word. You have a little child. When he first gets here, you feed him milk. Either from the mother or a formula. After a while, you get baby food. and You feed the baby food. But suppose when that child is 20 years old, you're still just giving him milk and baby food. You'd say something's radically wrong. And it may be. After we've been saved a while... We need to go on to maturity, the meat of the word. And if you read closely in here, it seems that this is what he's talking about. Number one, if this is referring to salvation, then he's saying, if you fall away from the godly life, there's no chance for you forever. Or if it's saying you come up almost to salvation, and then you turn away, there's no chance forever. You crucify the Son of God fresh and put him to open shame. I want to suggest and you may not see it the way I see it, and I understand that, we're all priests before God. But I don't want to suggest that he's talking about going on to perfection. He's going on to maturity. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. And so he says if you have tasted the good word and you've been partakers of the Holy Ghost and you've known what God wanted you to do and you had a vision or an impression from the Holy Spirit inside of you and then you turn away, you're destined to live in the shallows the rest of your life. And you could never do what God wanted you to do. The bird with the broken pinion never soared so high again. Does that mean that person's lost? I think not. I don't believe it means that. What he is saying is God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful blueprint. This is in line with all the other scripture. In Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren of the mercies of God, that you present your body. You're already saved. You're already given him your heart. You have a new heart. But present your body. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That means give your eyes to Jesus so they don't have to look upon pornography. Give your hands to Jesus so they don't get involved in things that would embarrass Jesus. Let your feet be swift to take you to places that would honor Christ. Wear the kind of clothes that would honor Christ modesty, not calling attention to the gaudiness of our own lives. Men and women both need to face that. There's so much carelessness and slovenliness. I think a Christian ought to look like a Christian, walk like a Christian, talk like a Christian, and so on. Now, you know, I know that that's in in just a diametrical opposition to what is being taught today. And and I I understand if you have a hard time with what I'm saying, I understand because everywhere you look, you see girls in shorts, shorter shorts, the better. You see guys in shorts and you see them practically wearing nothing. They go out half naked and so on. And uh, I wanna just raise a voice to say, I don't believe that's God's plan. And if you don't like it, I love you anyway and you forgive me for offending you. (laughs) if that offends, but it's the Word of God. Modest apparel is God's plan. Now, if you insist on going the other way, for example, I know some Christians who say, well, I I drink just a little beer or a little whiskey, a little wine, just uh, for social sake. If you insist on doing that, you limit the way God can use you. I know people who'd say, well, I've had a habit of smoking for years and years and years. I've smoked since I was six years old. And I just can't quit. And I always hold up to a Mickey Berkeley who quit drugs and alcohol and all the rest. He said the hardest thing I had to quit was cigarettes. But when God gave me the victory, I got busy for God. Praise the Lord. You see, cigarettes drag you down. They're hard, harmful testimony why they hurt other people. You know when somebody sees you light up some camels or whatever they have and they think, well, I didn't know that guy did that. I didn't know he did it. I I wonder about him. Now, you call that judgmentalism? No, that's just, suppose you were drinking and somebody said, I didn't know that guy drank. That's not judgmentalism. It's a recognition of actions that are not wise, that are not spiritual. And do you know that tonight, this very night, God could give you the victory over that if you wanted it. We had a lady in our church a number of years ago. And one night, I think it was on Sunday night, she walked down the aisle. And she had a pack of cigarettes. She said, I want to lay these before God. I'm so ashamed I've been smoking for I don't know how many years and years and years. And she gave them to the Lord and that night she quit smoking. But it was too late. One year later, she died of lung cancer. And just before she died, I had been to see her regularly, but she sent specially. and said, please come. I, I need to tell you something before I go. She said, I know I'm saved. I got saved at Glendale. I know I'm going to heaven in a few days. But she said, I only had one year to give to Jesus. Just one. And I don't know what I'm going to tell him when I get before him. Just one year and so let me encourage everyone to take seriously if they shall fall away fall away from what not salvation fall away from doing what God has asked you to do fall away from being what God wants you to be now notice in verses uh, four, seven, and 8 For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it and bringeth forth herbs fit for them by whom it is tilled receiveth blessing from God. This is an illustration of the person that goes on with God. But look in verse 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is near unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now he's still talking about the the, the tillage and the crops and so on. And he says you, you have to discard that. I don't think he's saying that a saved person will have to be burned or discarded. What he's saying is you'll never be able to do the will of God. You'll never be able to do all that God wanted you to do to be if you fall away. Now, does fall away mean some sin? Well, we're all sinners. Every, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. To fall away means you know what God wants and you say, no, I'll not do it. Years ago, we've all heard of Joseph Stalin. Some of us were alive during his awful reign of terror in Russia, in Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin, in his early life, went to a college that was sponsored by the Orthodox Church of Russia, the Eastern Orthodox. And they had a chapel service. And somebody on fire for God stirred the hearts of all those students and asked them this question. First of all, are you right with Jesus? Do you know you're saved? And secondly, if you are saved, would you offer your life to serve him? Stalin wrestled with that. He turned and walked out of the meeting and went out on that college campus and he walked to and fro and he walked all around and this question was in his heart. Finally he looked into the heavens and he said, no God, I will never be a preacher. I will never be a servant of yours. I'm going to do it my way. Stalin became famous. He became the emperor of the Soviet Union, so to speak. He killed millions of his own people. When his end came, the next leaders of Russia downplayed him. They even removed his statues because they were ashamed of him. This is the man that said no to God. And I want to tell you, there are men and women in this within the sound of my voice tonight, God is dealing with you. God is speaking to you. God is saying, I, here's a task, here's a work for you to do. And you're saying, I'm too busy working at McDonald's or working at some factory or doing something else. I don't have time to do what God wants. If they shall fall away, not from salvation, but fall away from going on with God. That's how this chapter begins. He says therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ let us go on unto perfection. And he lists some doctrines he says you don't have to go over these doctrines over and over and over again. They're wonderful they're important that's how you got saved but you need to go further. You need to get down to brass tacks with God. What does God want you to do? Are you willing? Now, first of all, it starts with salvation. It is possible to interpret this scripture, someone coming right up to the door of salvation and then saying no and turning away. And this passage would say, if it means that, it would say you could never be saved. Now, I don't know when that door, line is that you cross but there's a line that is drawn but for saved people let me encourage you get as close to the heart of God as you possibly can get as close as you possibly can to spirit filled believers pray with them walk with them eat with them talk with them have fellowship with them Find somebody that is close to Christ, that is trying to go on in the will of God, make that your closest friend and your associate. And through that, God can reveal to you more of what he's saying. My time is up, but let me share the last part of this chapter. If you'll look over in verse... uh, 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. The illustration has been given that, that God promised Abraham a son, and Abraham believed God. And it was that belief that was counted to him for righteousness. And when anybody would say, hey, Abraham, are you going to have a son? You told us 10 or 15 years ago you're going to have a son. Yeah, I'm going to have a son. How do you know? God said it. There's no evidence yet. My wife isn't pregnant, but we're going to have a son. Well, you crazy fool. How do you know that? Because God's still alive, and God said it. And so wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of his promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He said, by God's direction, Abraham, you're going to have a son. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What is the hope? The hope is Jesus. Jesus. He's the one that entered into the veil. Beyond here. When he died on the cross, his blood was shed for our sins. Three days later, he was raised from the grave. Mary met him at the tomb. And after finally recognizing who he was, she was going to worship him and clutch his feet. He said, Mary, don't touch me. I am not yet ascended. A few days later, he said, Thomas, touch me. Reach in your hand to my side. What was the difference? He had gone to the glory and placed the blood sacrifice on the altar in heaven. If you have a hard time believing that, read the book of Exodus. The tabernacle on earth was built exactly like God had it in heaven. And God, that's the reason God so meticulously told Joshua and the others how to do it. Every plank, every board, every Uh, valus every part of it was just like heaven and so when Jesus went back to the glory he placed the blood there without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins and the only way you'll ever get into heaven is under the blood of Christ if you have no blood atonement no blood covering then you're not going to go to heaven and I appeal to you tonight to come to Jesus with your Sins and your faith and your faithlessness and your questions and all the others and just come place yourself under him then Jesus came back and appeared for 40 days and 40 nights sometimes was apparent sometimes was invisible but he was there all along preparing them and preparing the church for all these 2,000 years to remind us that Jesus is right here and he's in our midst tonight He's knocking on your heart door. He's saying, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. Will you do it? Will you do it? Who would say yes to God tonight? God may need you as a missionary in Africa. He may need you to serve in some church as a pillar in that church. He may need you to be another Billy Graham. He may need you To Preach the word as a pastor somewhere. He may need you to be a lawyer like David Gibbs who could defend God's people as we approach the end of the age. Are you willing? Are you willing to say, Lord, I'm willing for your filling. I'm willing for your way, not mine. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this wonderful truth from God's Word, and we pray that not one person tonight would fall away from the purpose and plan God has for that person. First of all, we pray that You will help us to be done with worldliness and all the attractions of the world that would cause us to be less than what God wants. And then we pray, Father, that some in this place would sense God's plan for their lives and would say, here am I, Lord, use me. Then there are others who are lost, maybe church members, but never been saved. We pray that thy spirit would deal with their hearts. And while it is today, they might not have a hardened heart. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. Let's stand, please. Come, every soul by sin oppressed there's mercy with the Lord in that good wonderful mercy with the Lord now friend if you're here tonight and God has spoken to your heart about anything I don't know what you do what God tells you to do this is his invitation this is his church this altar area belongs to Jesus you may need to come and just pray You may need to come and offer your life to God. Somebody here may need to come and say, I've never been saved. Church member, but never saved. Somebody may need to come and say, I want to move my membership and be part of Glendale Baptist Church. While we pray and sing, you do what God tells you to do.